0: Welcome to Trial Tested, a podcast by the American College of Trial Lawyers, an enlightening discussion about life and law created to elevate and inspire trial attorneys. My name is Amy Gunn, and I will be your host for today's episode. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the American College of Trial Lawyers podcast, Trial Tested. I'm Amy Gunn, a fellow from St. Louis, and today I have the great privilege of spending some time with three prominent trial attorneys and fellows of the college, Bob Trout, Josh Treem, and Bill Jeffries. Bob Trout has over 40 years of experience trying civil and criminal cases. He began his career at the Department of Justice in the Criminal Division and moved on to become an Assistant United States Attorney in Baltimore, Maryland. Thereafter, he went into private practice focusing on complex commercial litigation and white-collar criminal defense. Josh Treem has also over 40 years of experience trying civil and criminal cases. He began his career at the Department of Justice. Josh worked as an attorney in the Civil Rights Division and moved on to working as an assistant U.S. attorney in Baltimore, Maryland as well. Josh moved into private practice focusing on criminal defense and pro bono work. Bill Jeffries has over 45 years of experience trying complex criminal and civil cases. After graduating law school, Bill served as a law clerk for Judge Garrett Giselle of the United States District Court for the District of Columbia and Justice Potter Stewart of the United States Supreme Court. Bill's private practice work focuses on representation of corporations and individuals under investigation or indictment for violations of criminal law, and he serves as an expert witness testifying on legal ethics and trial practice. Hello, gentlemen. How are you today?
1: Excellent. We're doing well. We're well. Thank you.
0: Wonderful. Well, on this episode, we're going to dive into a trial that had many interesting twists and turns, particularly the defendants involved. And I was wondering, Bob, would you mind getting us started and just give us a background of how this case started and who the players are?
1: Sure. Thanks, Amy. So it's Bob Trout. And our star of this trial was an individual by the name of Richard Byrd. Bird was a drug dealer. He was also an events promoter and he was very successful at both. In both enterprises, he generated a huge amount of cash. In 2014, he was arrested on the drug charges and over the years when he had his drug issues, He retained a very, very accomplished trial lawyer, a fellow of the American College of Trial Lawyers by the name of Kenny Ravenel. Brilliant lawyer. And Kenny Ravenel had represented him over the years whenever there was kind of drug issues that came up. In August, Kenny Ravenel's law firm was raided by the federal government. It became clear that he was himself under investigation. It appears that the investigation was a money laundering investigation. You know, was Kenny Ravenel laundering? funds for Richard Burr. He hired a lawyer in due course. He changed lawyers. This is Kenny Ravenel. He changed lawyers and hired Josh Train. Josh is the dean of the White Collar Criminal Defense Bar. He also is a fellow of the American College, and uh, he's been practicing at the time. He was practicing for close to 50 years, doing largely criminal practice in Maryland. So Ravenel in 2016 hires Josh Treem. The key witness is Richard Byrd. In November 2016, Byrd pled guilty. Cooperation was not part of the plea agreement. February 2017, he was sentenced to 26 years in prison. Again, cooperation was never part of his agreement with the government. In April 2017, after the sentencing, Josh had been told by his lawyer that Bird wanted to speak with him, that he had exculpatory information. Josh wanted to wait until after the sentencing in order to reach out and do that. He writes a letter with the incentive lawyer. He writes a letter to Bird, And in April of 2017, he receives a voicemail from Bird. Here is briefly what was said on the voicemail. Mr. Trim, this is Bird." You need to come see me immediately it's a lot of information that i have that is exculpatory to your client that was the voicemail that josh received in april of 2017 because bird was being transported from one place to another josh had difficulty nailing him down And it was not until September that he was actually able to arrange for an interview. September 7, 2017, he was able to arrange an interview of Byrd in the Merritt County Detention Center, where Byrd was awaiting charges in Arizona. So the interview is going to take place in September 9th. Josh is going to come interview him. He, in keeping with good practice, is going to take a professional investigator with him to be a witness to the interview to make sure that he has a witness in case that interview needs to be introduced in evidence at some later time. He, again, has the consent of the lawyers. He's in touch with Byrd's lawyer. Uh, what Josh does not know is that in August, Byrd had entered into an agreement to cooperate with the government in mid-August. So in September, when Josh shows up, unbeknownst to him, Byrd is now cooperating and he is wearing eyeglasses that seemingly are his eyeglasses, but in fact, they are magic glasses (laughs) that are videotaping the entire interview. Now, it's important to remember, although Bird was not his lawyer, this was a lawyer meeting. It was not being recorded by jail, as some meetings are recorded. This was a private interview that was being conducted by a lawyer of a defense witness, and it was being recorded by the government only because Byrd was now cooperating with the authorities. So in advance of the interview, Josh had, in consultation with his client, had received from his client a two-page list of all of the things that the client asserted to be true about his relationship with Bird. These were a total of 53 affirmative statements that Josh's client essentially gave to Josh. They were all exculpatory, and Josh intended to use this two-page statement, written statement, as essentially talking points for him to guide his interview of Bird.
0: May I ask a question? Sure. The notion that Josh and the investigator can sit with a potential witness and it be recorded, obviously he's a cooperating witness, but is that normal? Is that something that happens all the time?
1: No, no. Okay, oh, all right. The, no is the answer. <laughs> okay, good. That's, that's easy. Yeah, a resounding no to be more accurate. I think Look. the lawyers in this room have collectively practiced law for probably 150 years. <laughs> None of us have ever seen this before. But, right.
0: Okay. Well, that struck me as odd, and certainly not something that Josh, you should have been expecting, or concerned about, or suspicious of. Right.
2: Yes, well, that's certainly true, yes. I was not anticipating that the government would listen in on any device at all. I mean, there was always a risk that Byrd could go out and talk to whoever he wanted to talk to, but certainly the thought that this was being recorded, both video and audio, never crossed my mind.
1: And let me add that during the course of the video, Bird kept emphasizing, number one, there is no way he would ever agree to cooperate with the government, and number two, he repeatedly sought assurances from Josh That what they were talking about would remain confidential and would not be disclosed to anyone else. So, you know, Josh was certainly led to believe that this was his attorney work product that would remain confidential and would not be disclosed to anyone. There is some case law to the effect that when a prosecutor asks a witness, you know, you can talk to whoever you want to talk to. And the case law is very clear. Witnesses don't belong to any party. They're free to talk to whoever they want to and to provide information to whatever party it is. And in the past, when a prosecutor has asked a witness, you know, you can certainly talk to defense lawyers if you want, but we'd like an agent to be present or we'd like to be present in the room when you talk to them. That is out of bounds. That is improper. And so it was a shock to us that the government would think that they could do surreptitiously what they can't do openly, but they did it.
0: And the consequence, I think we'll get there, but is it a rule that they can't do it or is it just sort of the practice that they don't or can't do it?
1: Well, I think that, you know, as I view it, it is basically, I don't know whether you would call it due process, Mm -hmm. but the fact of the matter is, is that witnesses are, you know, to facts are available to the parties.
0: Right. And it
1: is absolutely improper and unethical for a lawyer to basically say, I don't want you to talk to the other side. Do not do that. I mean, you can certainly tell your client that, but you can't tell a third party witness. Don't talk to the other side. And certainly if the government in a criminal case is on the other side of that, You could be looking at obstruction of justice charges if you are getting in the way of the government getting facts. But you should understand, Amy, that the judge in Josh's case denied a motion to throw out the recording on the grounds
2: that it was improperly obtained. The other point is that there was absolutely no evidence prior to the hearing that the government had that would suggest that Sean, who I took with me to the interview, or I, had done anything wrong or were intending to do something wrong. I mean, there was absolutely nothing to suggest to the government that we had engaged in any criminal activity with Kenny or with Byrd or with anybody associated with the government's investigation. And so, to the extent that there was a crime fraud exception that sometimes can be argued, it could not have been argued to give the government any probable cause to believe that something that I would do or say was going to be inculpatory of anyone. They had nothing. and This is after, I guess, three years of investigation after the 2014 charges were
0: filed. All right. So we're in. The September 9th, 2017 meeting, and it's Josh, the private investigator, and Mr. Bird. All right. The video magic glasses are on, unbeknownst to you all. And what happens?
1: So, Josh actually spends, and Sean Gordon, the investigator, spent about three hours with Bird interviewing him. It was a very conversational, open-ended sort of interview. There was nothing that was at all threatening or aggressive about the questioning at all. Nothing improper at all. And Bird, over the course of three hours, says nothing incriminating about Kenny Ravenel. You know, I told you that Josh had brought into the room two pages of 53 affirmative exculpatory statements that his client had prepared for him to guide the interview. And after some time, there was some chit chat and there was some initial conversation about it. And then Josh turns to the two pages and he starts reading it and Bird says, Don't you want me to just take the paper and read it and answer the questions? That would be easier. And Josh agrees that would be easier. Josh then hands across the table to Bird, the two pages that he has, the only copy that he has, and he gives it to Bird. And Bird starts reading the individual items on the list. And so he reads one and he says, yep, that's correct. Yeah, true, true, correct, true and he goes through all of the individual pieces, and he gets to number 22, agrees that that's true also, and then Josh, you know, asks some follow-up questions, and there is a digression that actually takes five pages in the transcript, and then they finish talking about whatever they were talking about, and so Bird now returns the list. Unbeknownst to Bird, he has skipped from 22 to 27. So he has actually skipped four items on the list. And then he proceeds to finish out the list and goes through each individual one to the very end. And each time he's essentially saying, yes, that's true, correct, true, yes, true. So at no time does he disagree with any of the affirmative exculpatory statements that are on the list. He affirms every single one that he reads to be true. What Josh doesn't know, because he doesn't have the list, is that he had skipped four of the 53 items on the list. So they had always planned to come back the next day, and they do. Josh comes in with Sean Gordon, says right off the bat, he says, look, I'm not going to go through this again. But I would like you, if you would, please just sign this paper that you read yesterday just to confirm that this is the paper you went over yesterday. And Bird says, yeah, he's happy to do that. They're talking about who's got a pen and whatnot turns out before he actually signs the document, he seeks reassurances that what they're talking about is absolutely confidential, nobody's gonna know about this. And Josh says, this is my work product, nobody's gonna see this. And so he emphasizes again, no way is he gonna cooperate, but the truth of the matter is Kenny knew everything. And so he essentially flips on the second day. And during the course of that, He says, and this is a quote, so what I'm saying is that I'm going to be the good soldier like I'm supposed to be, but I need Ken to put his nuts on the line for me and make sure I get my fucking money. He had been talking about money that he was owed by the law firm that was still in escrow and money that he claimed now that Kenny Ravenel knew that he was entitled to from various investments. And he did explicitly say, I'm willing to give the exculpatory version on the witness stand, but I need to be paid. I need to be paid my money. Josh responds that what he's telling him now is different from what he had told him the day before. And then he says, and here again, I quote, I can't put you on the witness stand if you're going to lie. and If I know you're going to lie, I can't do that. And Josh then basically says, we need to end this interview. Now, at one point, and I can't remember whether it was before that or right after that, he basically says, you know, Kenny Ravenel has all of this information about the money that I'm owed and all of this information that shows his involvement. He's got all of that on his laptop. He needs to make sure that gets destroyed. And here again, so what he says is, Quote, Ken keeps a chart of all my investments and the players that it's involved, the hows and the where's. He needs to make sure all that vanishes off the laptop. Josh Treem refused. Here's what he said. Quote, well, he can't do that. I can't have him. I can't advise him to delete stuff off his laptop. I can't do that. I told you, Richard, yesterday there's a subpoena out for that stuff. I can't delete it. And he can't either." So Josh ends the meeting, and he and Sean Gordon return to Baltimore. Now, Josh wanted to make sure that there was some record of the exculpatory version that Byrd had given in case there was ever a time when Byrd was going to decide to cooperate and become a government witness. He wanted to be able to impeach him with his prior inconsistent statement that, on the ninth, Byrd had made nothing but exculpatory statements. And so he prepared a very brief affidavit or declaration for Sean Gordon to sign in which he essentially described the exculpatory version and went through the fact that he had reviewed 53 statements and had affirmed them to be true and that he was going to attach the copy of the signed statement. One thing I should mention that I neglected to mention was After he indicated that he wanted to end the meeting, he said, I would like you to go ahead and sign this document, the same document he'd asked him to sign at the beginning of the second day. And Byrd invited Josh out of the room, wanted to speak privately with the investigator. The investigator confirmed that all Josh wanted him to do was to sign it to confirm that he had seen it. And Bird then put his signature on the document.
0: Going back to the skipped 23, 24, 25, and 26 statements in that list, Josh, did you notice that he had skipped it or skipped those? No, no.
2: Okay. He had the only copy, and he was looking at it across the table, so I couldn't see exactly what he was reading at all. We actually assumed later on, Sean and I, because just the nature of the way he was responding or articulating, that he had, in fact, read them all. And I just, you know, I checked them off, but he had the only copy. But you didn't find out otherwise until the indictment was returned. Exactly right. right. Yes, that's right.
0: <laughs> and so on the 10th, when Bird comes back and he sort of changed his mind, I suppose, how did you feel about that? Is that something that can happen, does happen, or was it suspicious? What do you think?
2: Well, I guess the short answer is kind of all of the above. It dawned on me immediately that he was just doing a total backflip as to what he said yesterday. And the thought did cross my mind that maybe this is part of some setup, but I wanted to kind of hear him out. And then I remember thinking, you know, we have to just end this and get out of here. And that's what we did. And on the way home, flying back, I made some notes because there were some conflicting kind of utilities that could be made of what he said not the least of which if he ever wound up being a government witness, which I started to think about because he was facing 26 years in jail. And at this point, the only thing he had to trade was information. And I made a note of that on my notepad, actually, that he had just given me a great topic to cross-examine him on. Day one or day two, you know, take your pick. So there was a threat, but he also, as as a defense attorney, you know, I'm looking at some dynamite cross-examination And to be clear, Amy, I don't
1: think he changed his mind. I think he just changed his story. Okay. Yeah.
0: So the 10th is totally different from the 9th, and you all finish up the day. But before you leave, Bird starts talking about how he wants his money. So help me understand what money is he talking about?
1: So during the course of both days, one of the topics that he had discussed was how he had gotten you know, presumably from the drug money as well as from his event promotion business. He'd made a lot of money, he had investments and he also had money that was left in the law firm that had been given, you know, as a retainer for legal fees that had not yet been used or earned and he wanted his money, you know, he was claiming that the law firm and Kenny was no longer at that law firm, but that law firm owed him money and he wanted his money. So that was what he was describing. You know, he had these investments that he claimed to have Mm -hmm. and that he claimed were reflected on Kenny Ravenel's laptop, which is why he wanted, you know, all the information on the laptop deleted. And Josh, of course, had refused to do that. Turns out there was nothing on the laptop that would have substantiated what he was claiming.
0: So after September 10th, 2017, what is the next contact? What happens next?
1: So again, before he leaves, Josh had asked him would he go ahead and sign this piece of paper that he had previously the day before affirmed to be true, and he did at that point. They go back to Baltimore and Josh prepares an affidavit for Sean Gordon, the investigator, to essentially make a record of the exculpatory statements that Bird had made. And in that declaration, it states that he read all 53 of the statements and affirmed them to be true. Josh, of course, thought that that was, in fact, the case, because from his perspective, it sounded like he had read all 53, but Josh was not aware of the fact that he had skipped four and therefore had only read and affirmed 49 of the 53. So the declaration was technically incorrect in saying that he read and affirmed all 53. He put the affidavit, the declaration, in his file where it remained and was never used but it was seized by the government when they raided Josh's law firm. And that's when they got the affidavit or declaration that Sean Gordon had signed. And they also got the two-page document that contained Richard Byrd's signature and date, September nine. So that was the end of it. Josh had a record in his file of the exculpatory statements that would be used in the event that he became a government witness and were to testify in a way that was incriminating of Ravenel. And that was the end of it until January of 2018, when Sean Gordon got a voicemail from Richard Byrd. And here's, I'm going to quote, here's what the voicemail to Sean Gordon said, Sean, What's going on, man? Listen, I haven't seen you since September, man. I thought y'all was going to come back and see me. I haven't heard anything. I'm trying to figure out what's going on with the love. Like, I've done everything I'm supposed to, and I'll hold the fort down. What's going on with the love? Like, nobody showed up. Nobody did nothing. I asked you about all the stuff that I needed done, and I ain't got nothing back. I ain't got no answers, no nothing. Listen, y'all make me feel like I need to call fucking Warwick. Warwick was the AUSA who was leading the investigation. Like, what's going on? Like, somebody need to do something, man. Like, I'm holding this shit down. Made everything happen for y'all. Listen, I need to talk to you because I need to know what the fuck is going on because I need to get taken care of. All right? And that was the voicemail. And Sean Gordon gets the voicemail and immediately goes to Josh Treem, who discusses it with Kenny Ravenel. They are very clear, obviously, that they're not going to play this game. But what should they do? And Kenny Ravenel writes to the investigator and says, completely ignore this. We're not doing this crazy stuff. And he goes to his lawyer, Josh Treem, And the decision is made. We need to report this. We need to report it for two reasons. We need to report it to make it clear that we're not going to submit to this extortion, this blackmail. And second, you know, we are witnesses to a crime. And Josh is kind of old school in that way. He thinks as a lawyer, if you are a witness to a crime, you have a duty to report it. The problem is, is that he did not believe, consistent with his client's interests, that he could report it to the authorities who were then investigating his client. You know, they may run down and talk to Bird, and this was not in his client's interest. What should he do? He made the decision that he would report it to someone with unimpeachable integrity. And so he decided that the person he wanted to report it to was a federal judge whom Josh had known since they were assisting U.S. attorneys together in Baltimore back in the 1970s. This judge had been in private practice and had worked with Josh in private practice. They were professional friends. This judge had been the U.S. attorney, so was obviously well-schooled in law enforcement. And now he was a federal judge who, as it happens, had been the judge who had sentenced Richard Byrd. and had the Byrd case. The Byrd case was now over as far as Josh was concerned. Nothing was pending before the judge, but he was certainly knowledgeable about Byrd. And Josh thought of all the people he could report this to, the judge was the one who was most informed and whose sensibilities would be most well-tuned to make the right calls as to how to deal with the situation. So he writes a letter to the judge and he reports on the shakedown. You know, I feel like I have an obligation to report this, but I can't report it to the law enforcement, so I'm reporting it to you. He does not ask the judge to do anything. This is just an informational item. And in the course of that, he gives him background, and he explains to the judge that they had met with Byrd earlier in September and that Byrd had made all these exculpatory statements, refers to conversation the next day that he says he was concerned, sounded extortionate, and that they ended the interview and then, of course, reports on the voicemail in January. He does not disclose in that letter that Bird on the second day had made incriminating statements about Kenny Ravenel. In due course, the judge, after several months, the judge decides that he feels it's appropriate to turn the letter over to the government. And in fact, he discusses that with Josh and Josh agrees. So the letter with Josh's consent is turned over to the government.
0: And why was that decision made? Was there something coming up, more discussion, more information? Why?
1: Well, as it happens, unbeknownst to Josh, The government, you know, with Byrd as a cooperator, the government, if they were going to give cooperation credit, needed to file a motion for reduction of sentence within one year of sentencing. So in January Mm -hmm. of 2018, they had filed a motion under seal to reduce Byrd's sentence. Mm -hmm. Josh knew nothing about that, but it turns out the judge did know it. Because it was pending before him. And so I think when the judge got the letter in February, he thought, "Okay, I'm going to hold this. But as he thought about it more and more, he felt it was appropriate for the government, who had this pending motion in front of him, to be aware of this information because it obviously would bear on whether Byrd should get, you know, the reduction. I mean, after all, this cooperator is making this shakedown call. Is this something that the government ought to know about? It turns out that, in fact, when the shakedown call was made in January, the government was sitting in the room. There were agents in the room, including the assistant U.S. attorney, Warwick with Byrd when he made that shakedown call, and we only learned that about two weeks before trial when we got the rest of the discovery. And at that time, what we learned is that three minutes after he placed the call, the government terminated his cooperation agreement. We still don't know why or what was said to Byrd that caused them to terminate his status as a cooperator.
0: How did you know it was so shortly after the call?
1: We got a report this was part of the so-called jinx material which the government is obliged to give you in advance of trial and so we received this and there was a report and it said at 11:25 Bird placed this call this voicemail call and described it to Sean Gordon so we knew that that was the call that they were referring to and then they said at 11:28 you know, agent so-and-so informed her that they were terminating his status as a cooperator.
0: But that's not information that you had until right before trial. Yes. My goodness. Okay, so we're through 2018, and at this point, we still don't know about the recording, right? Yes, yes. We
2: didn't know anything about it at that point.
1: So here's the timeline. In January of 2019, Josh gets a subject letter. In the letter, it didn't explain why he was accepting. I called up, what is this about? They refused to give me any information. I mean, we knew that it was related to his representation of Kenny Ravenel, and that's all we knew. In June of 2019, his law firm was raided, and he simultaneously received a target letter. Oh. The law firm challenged the filter team process and protocols that were set forth in the search warrant and successfully so. Fellow of the American College of Trial Lawyers, James Alwick in Baltimore, appeared in the Fourth Circuit after being denied relief in the district court. And the Fourth Circuit agreed with him that the filter protocols were fundamentally flawed and sent it back for a special master. And that was in the fall of 2019. Kenny Ravenel, by the way, had been indicted in September of 2019 The so-called conspiracy ended in 2014. There was no reference to anything involving Josh, and Josh had not been involved in anything before 2016. So we're thinking, okay, they have figured out there's no further follow-up regarding Josh. This is just going to go away. They're going to get the documents through the uh, special master process, and we still don't know anything about the search warrant affidavit or the probable cause that caused them to search the law firm. 2020, you recall, we have a pandemic starting. So Ravenel was supposed to go to trial in April. COVID was going to get in the way of that. But in the meantime, in a status conference, they made reference to the possibility of a superseding indictment. And that got our attention. So with that, we then made a submission to the U.S. attorney in Baltimore Essentially, we felt that we knew all the facts. We couldn't understand what the basis of any criminal case could be. So we made that submission to the U.S. Attorney's Office in Baltimore. At this point, we knew that they had the letter from Judge Bennett, but we didn't know about the recording. And so that was in July. We made the submission. We asked for a reverse proffer. They told us that they were just there to listen. They were not going to give us a worst proffer. We told them that we couldn't understand what were we missing. Josh Treem, with his stature and his prior experience as a federal prosecutor in Baltimore, had earned the right to be told in advance what he had done wrong. They declined to give us any information. We asked for advance notice if they were going to bring a case so that we could seek review at the Department of Justice. They told us that they were making no promises. And uh, in December 17, I was having a conversation with Josh about, you know, that obviously are going to be declining prosecution. There's no case here. Do we go to the outgoing U.S. attorney? This is after the election. Or do we wait for the new U.S. attorney in order to approach them and say, give us the declination letter we should have had long ago? And as we were having that very conversation, the grand jury was meeting and approving a superseding indictment in which Kenny Ravenel, Josh Treem, and Sean Gordon were all indicted on four counts of obstruction of justice, in addition to the three counts of drug-related counts that Kenny Ravenel had already been indicted on. And I learned about that from the Baltimore Sun the next day. Oh, wow. A major breach of normal courtesy and protocol. Yeah, and
2: I heard it at 7.30 in the morning when I got a call from a partner of mine who said, hey, have you seen the Baltimore Sun today? Uh
0: well, I guess it would be a little bit too simple to ask how you felt about that, but tell us.
2: <laughs> well, at this point, my representation of Ken had been going on for three years. I had some history with the prosecutor who had taken over the case from Warwick and was responsible for the drafting of the superseding indictment he's all over that. Frankly, I was not surprised. I'd gotten the target letter six months earlier or so, and that told me really all I needed to know. They weren't going to walk away from it, especially after Bob and Dan had this meeting, which he just described. You know, if they weren't going to back away in the face of that, they were going to go
0: forward. So what was the history with the prosecutor you mentioned, Josh? this is Leo Wise,
2: and he had indicted a sitting Maryland state senator named Ulysses Curry from Prince George's County for bribery. Three men were charged. I was representing the corporate executive who allegedly authorized the bribery, and the case went to trial. There were three defendants. There were 19 counts in the indictment. Case was tried over a couple of weeks, and all three defendants were acquitted of all the charges. I'm not sure of this, but I think this case was relatively early in Mr. Wise's um, tenure at the U.S. Attorney's Office. He came from, I think, some ethics committee, whether it was House or Senate here in D.C. But I didn't have any other trials with him up until this one. But that was experience enough, the one I had in that representation.
0: You beat him at trial. Was there any question in your mind that that had something to do with this?
2: No, I don't think it had anything to do with respect to my representing Ken or being out to get me, but you have to read what he writes very carefully. That's what I learned from the
0: earlier trial. Understood. Well, gentlemen, thank you so much for your time today. Bob Trout, Bill Jeffries, Josh Treem. It occurs to me that there is so much more to talk about. So we're going to take a pause here and come back next week for part two of this episode.
1: Thank you, Amy.
0: Thank you for listening to Trial Tested. Our next episode drops on Thursday, so please subscribe now and hear every inspiring episode.